If I haven't met you, my name's Nick. Welcome. And uh, I'm lead pastor here, one of the elders. Let's uh, open up our Bibles to Luke's Gospel. And um, we'll get we'll get going. Let me. It's going to be Luke chapter one, verse thirteen to uh, sixteen. If you need a Bible, we got the ushers here. You can raise your hands and let them know. If you don't have a Bible, you can keep it. If you want to give it away, you can keep it. Um, but yeah, and, and like Ian said, I'm excited about the uh, the members meeting that we'll be having afterwards. I hope that you guys can make it. Uh, put in a lot, <laughs> too much time, honestly, into kind of getting stuff ready for you guys. I have, I have a heart for, you know, wanting to incorporate the membership, wanting to be to be um, better at communicating vision, wanting to get feedback, wanting you guys to have access to me to ask questions. I realize in a in a uh, transition like this. Um, sometimes there might be questions kind of burning in the background. You're just, I wish that I, you know, is he, what is his plan with this? Or what's going to happen with that? Or that was my favorite part of the previous, you know, uh, guard and now it's gone. Or, you know, so I just want you guys to know that um, I care. And, uh, and uh, even though in the meeting I'm going to do quite a bit of talking, I'm going to try to set the, the groundwork for why I care and want you guys to be a part of this mission with us together. Um, so I hope you can make it. Luke 1, verses 13 to 16. We've been going through um, the gospel here at a a breakneck pace. And we're going to keep that pace here this morning. Verses 13 to 16. Let's read it. I'll pray. We'll get in. But the angel said to him, this is Gabriel speaking to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Let's pray, guys. God, we come to your word not just out of superstition, not just some sort of religious ritual, Not just because it's tradition and what we've always done, but because we believe that therein we find life. God, would you quiet our hearts? Would you quiet our minds? Would you prepare us to be addressed by you? I mean, what a thought, what a thought that the God of all heaven and earth, all the universe, desires to speak in these moments to us. So Lord, we invite you to draw near 
We trust that in Christ we're pleasing in your sight and we'll be received. And we beg you, Jesus, give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see. Help us, Lord, to to, uh, receive from you this morning. And God, would you receive from us our praise. I need your help, Lord. Ask that you would give me strength. Get me out of the way. I just want to be a conduit, just want to be a vessel. Would you do these things for your glory, we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Sorry, guys. I, I've been fighting this cold for some reason for like two weeks, maybe now, three weeks. I don't even know. So my apologies. I know last week was punctuated by coughing fits. Hopefully this week won't be the same. Um, does anyone come into this room this morning sad, depressed, sorrowful, maybe even despairing? I mean, you kind of have that spectrum, right? The blue side of the emotional spectrum. Sorrow, despair. I don't even want to get out of bed. I'm praying for you, and I'm preaching for you, because I I believe that in this text, there is joy to be found. And um, that's where we're going to head this morning. And my, my prayer is that the sorrow that often rises up and strangles the heart of a child of God would, in these moments here, as we come to His Word, be turned into joy. He would turn it around by His grace for His glory. What we're going to do, um, I'm just going to trek through this verse by verse, uh, starting at verses four, verse 14 and going into verse 16, okay? And we're going to move from a pregnant joy, verse 14, to a spirit-filled prophet, verse 15, and then finally to a family reunion there in verse 16. And my apologies, I don't have a handout for you. I know some of you guys probably find that helpful. And if you're a home group leader, I I let you down. Uh, Some of you guys might use those questions. You'll have to come up with your own. I uh, was up late printing all the stuff that I had in in mind for... uh, for the members uh, meeting, and and I ran out of paper, and I ran out of time, let's be honest, I wasn't going to do a handout even if I had the paper. So uh, my apologies, it just means you have to focus all that more, uh, all the more closely on me, okay? Um, let's see, let's begin here then in verse 14. Verse 14, the angel Gabriel, he first begins to explain to Zechariah who his son John will be what he's going to do, and what effect he's going to have, what effect this coming miraculous son is going to have. And what do we read? Read it with me there at the beginning of verse 14. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Just stop us right there and ask, don't you just love that? Gabriel could start anywhere, okay? As he's talking about what John will be about and what he will do and what effect he'll have on, uh, on people and things, he could start anywhere. But the first note that is sounded is one of joy. And what we actually see is that Gabriel and God, jealous to keep us from missing this, 
don't want you to miss this first note that's sounding out. Because what we see is these words are just kind of multiplying here. You've got not just joy that this child's going to bring, but gladness. And then you see in the verb form there, rejoice, right? So he's just multiplying words in this very first verse as he's describing what this child's going to bring. Don't miss it. But there's more. There's more. Beyond the multiplication of words, what we see in verse 14 is that Gabriel's describing this joy, this gladness and rejoicing as a sort of expanding force, okay? It's not just a multiplication of words. It's almost like this multiplication of effects through various dimensions. I'll show you what I mean. It begins in what you might call the personal dimension, right? You see it there. You will have joy and gladness. You, Zechariah, will have joy and gladness. And this perhaps isn't surprising to us. We uh, would assume that a couple that had been barren and, and advanced in years would find joy and gladness in all of a sudden in, their, in their, the, the twilight hours of their life having a child, having a son. That makes sense. But, as we keep reading, another dimension opens up for us. It's what we might call the corporate dimension, because we see that, and many will rejoice at his birth. And here's the surprise of this announcement, it seems to me. It's not only Zechariah that is in view in this coming son, but Zechariah's nation, and even, as we'll see the gospel unfolds, the nations. So the you in the first part of the verse experiencing the joy becomes the many in the second part of the verse rejoicing. And joy is just sounding out here. We don't want to miss it. You and I are in this many, I believe. There's joy for us here, even in the birth of John and we're going to follow him to joy. We'll see. We don't want to miss it. As God resumes his redemptive activity in the world after an apparent 400 years of silence between Malachi 4 and Luke 1, the first note sounded is one of joy for the individual and for the world. And what does this tell us? The age of fulfillment. The, the, the age of the Messiah. Right? Brought in by the coming Christ. This age of fulfillment is also an age of joy. The entrance of God back into history now. Remember that. I mean, this is, this is God picking back up his redemptive program and sending Gabriel and starting to work again and, and the entrance of God into history again is coterminous, synonymous with the entrance of joy. Where God is, joy is. That's what I'm seeing here in verse 14. And I wonder, do you believe it? Do you believe this? Do you believe it where God is, joy is? The culture would have us believe, or flesh would have us believe, the one behind the flesh the, in the culture, 
devil would have us believe, God has killed joy. Not giving joy. He's not overflowing with joy. He's killing joy. You say, I want that girl. God says, no. You say, I want to store up my treasure in barns and live life to the fullest here. Eat, drink, and be merry now. He says, no. You say, fill in the blank. I want to get back at my enemy. Oh, that would just make me feel so good to give her what she has coming to her. God says, no. Not a give joy. He's a kill joy. It's just a whole bunch of no's coming from God, right? Luke, Gabriel, Zechariah, Elizabeth, John, they would all vehemently disagree. This God, He not only gives joy, He is joy. I'm going to labor here for a moment to show you this. Because I think, uh, I know, it's important. First, Luke's infancy narrative, I want you to know this, the first two chapters there, just light up with joy at every point. I mean, if you, I, I would encourage you, I realize, um, you know, we go, we're going through this on Sunday mornings, but I, I think you would get more out of my sermons uh, if you were, in fact, reading through the, the gospel itself. And I'd encourage you, read again and again, Luke 1 and 2, and start noticing some of these themes and some of these, you will see it all over the place. But joy is one of them, just sounding out. It's lighting up at every point in these first two chapters. I'll show you what I mean. The joy that's foretold in verse 14 regarding John with its personal and corporate dimensions, we, we already begin seeing um, that coming to fulfillment, beginning its fulfillment, as we keep reading just a few verses later. In um, verses 67 to 79 of chapter 1, what is it? It's Zechariah's joy. You will have joy and gladness because of this son, John, Zechariah. And then there in verse 67, he erupts with praise to God at the birth of his son. Joy just coming out of this man. God is good to me and to his nation and to the world. Personal dimension. And then corporate dimension there, you see the expanding effect of this joy in verse 58 where we read that Elizabeth's, read this, neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. There it is. Many will rejoice starting now. They see the mercy shown to this couple. God is merciful. Let's rejoice with them. But there is, I mean, John, the, the joy that John brings in the infancy narrative, just the beginning, and we, we know that. We're not here to worship John this morning, right? We're here to worship Jesus. John's joy was anticipating, uh, or the joy that John would bring was anticipating the joy that Jesus would bring. And we see that. Um, it's almost like getting even louder. The chorus just gets louder. The chorus of, of joy in uh, these first two chapters. I 
think you could say it begins there surrounding Jesus in, in 128. Um, this might be up for debate. But uh, the angel comes, Gabriel comes now to Mary and says, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You say, how's that joy? <laughs> Where greetings here in the Greek um, is actually the same word we find up in verse 14 that we translated rejoice. Now, many scholars point out, okay, this is probably a standard greeting, you know, so that's why most translations go greetings. But at the same time, some scholars say it, it could be a call to rejoice. Rejoice, oh favored one, because you will bear the Christ. And if we grant that perhaps this is a call to rejoice disguised under a standard greeting, then what we have is when Gabriel comes to Zechariah to talk about John, the first note sounded is joy. When Gabriel comes to Mary to talk about Jesus, the first note sounded is joy. And then, keep reading, chapter 2, verse 10, regarding this son, regarding Jesus, regarding the Christ, what do we see? The expanding effect, the multiplying effect of this joy. It's not just for Mary. It's going to be for all. Luke 2.10, the announcement to the shepherds, right, by the angel. Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So you got the you to the many in verse 14, and then you got Mary to all the people in 2.10. And as we keep reading in chapter 2, songs of joy just continue to erupt. I mean, just, it's like, I've never been to Yosemite, but you know, like the, the geysers, they just come, it's just like, that's what it's like reading Luke. Is it, the, just songs are erupting in light of what's going on, just joy rising to heaven. Did I say Yosemite? The geysers are in Yosemite now, right? <laughs> Yellowstone. It's the Y. I went with the Y National Park and I got, got it wrong. Right? Yeah, that would be Yellowstone. Am I right on that? Okay, okay. That's funny. At least I caught myself, you know? Somebody's come out, you said Yosemite. I know, I know, okay? <laughs> Songs are just rising. They're just erupting everywhere. The angel, after giving that announcement in verse 10, what happens? Oh, it's incredible. It's, he's like, hey, you know, I'm here to say it's going to be great joy for all the people. And they're like, oh, cool, okay, all right. And he goes, and let me just get you, give you a foretaste of that. Lifts up the curtain. And what's there? Myriad of angels, right? And singing. What is Verses 13 and 14, the curtain raises. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom He is pleased. Let me just give you an idea of what's happening in heaven. It seems all small and little down here, just a little baby in, in, a, in a perhaps an inn or a, you know, a barn, a stable. Let me give you just a, a sense of what's happening in heaven, what's happening in the heart of God. Listen to this. Right? And this angelic song is retuned, if you will, to the human tongue when Simeon starts to sing in verses 29 to 32 of Luke 2. He's singing over the baby Jesus there in the temple. As Jesus is being presented, right? Just 
saying over joy everywhere, all over this these first two chapters, but it's not just here. This note of joy actually frames the entire gospel. It's amazing. Luke doesn't just begin with joy here, he actually ends with it. He frames it with very similar uh, scenes. We begin here, basically at the temple, right? With this joy rising up to God, and we end at the temple with the disciples praising God. I want you to read this. This is, after, this is uh, Jesus as he's about to ascend. This is Luke 24. Verses 50 to 53. The song, the joy, it's reaching a crescendo at this point. Luke 24, verse 50. Then he, this is Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And we're continually in the temple, blessing God. Luke said, if you missed it in the beginning, I'm bringing it back in at the end. It's all about joy from the incarnation to the ascension. God has been working for yours and my joy. And of course, this is not a truth monopolized by Luke. What if you realize the entire Bible is framed with joy? In the beginning, it's there at the creation. Remember the resounding refrain that comes again and again as God's creating through the days of creation. Remember this? And he saw that it was good 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 and then he creates man and woman and he sees that it was very good you're stop back what's that why that detail why continually exclaiming over his word it's good we have a happy god God not only gives joy, He is joy. The creation is joy erupting. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I think we're supposed to read there in that resounding refrain. And we as His creatures are invited into that joy. That's what it means to be made in His image and brought into His presence. It begins with joy, the Bible does, and it ends there. The songs of the saints in heaven still echoing in our minds as we read the last verses of Revelation. Right? I mean, that's where the book ends. I begin creation, joy. I end the first creation moving into the new heavens and new earth. And what's the goal? Joy. It's there permeates the Bible. God is not a killjoy. He gives joy. And He not only gives joy, He is joy. Don't miss that. Verse 15, we come now to a Spirit-filled prophet. 
Because I want to know, how do we get it? Okay. So we're talking about joy and gladness and rejoicing. I want to know, how do we get it? And you can infer, right, uh, because Gabriel's talking about John at this point, from, in verse uh, 13, that, that this joy is connected to John. And we've already inferred that, and now logically in verse 15, that inference is going to be confirmed. Here's what we see. The joy and gladness is in fact grounded in, experienced on the basis of the person and work of this child. And I see that in those two beginning words of verse 15. For, for he will be great before the Lord. It connects us. It says, okay, there's going to be joy, there's going to be gladness, there's going to be rejoicing, because He, <laughs> because of this Son. So we start, to, we start to zero in on John here and say, okay, joy is somehow connected to what this miraculous Son is going to do. That's why I'm titling the message, which unfortunately you don't have the handout today, so you wouldn't know it. I'm titling the message... Uh, following John to fullness of joy. John's bringing this in here. He's going to bring joy. I want to follow him to it. We read, For he will be great before the Lord. Or in the Lord's sight, in his estimation. And here we recall what Jesus would later say of him. Among those born of women, remember this, none is greater than John. So this child's going to be great and he's going to bring, he's going to lead us to joy. First question we have to ask, first question that's, that's answered really as we move through the text is how. We're going to see how he's great and what he's going to do that's going to make him so great and how that leads you and I into this joy I've been talking about, the joy of God. So how uh, is what we see in the rest of verse 15? How is John going to be great? How is he going to do this? And the first thing we read is, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. He must not drink wine or strong drink. I essentially did a whole sermon last week just kind of riffing on that to some degree. But I want to ask again now in, in the context of this message, what does that mean? And here is where I think at first, um, at first read, it seems a bit counterintuitive. Okay, we, we get the sense that perhaps what we see is is John is being separated from the world for service to God. Right? We talked about that last week. That we kind of we see that, but then there's there's kind of counterintuitive element to it. When we think of joy, when we think of celebration, what do you think of? You think of you know opening up the, 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 the bottle of wine or, or, or the champagne, whatever it is. Celebration is often accompanied by wine and strong drink, even in the Bible. This isn't foreign to the Bible. I mean, Jesus' first sign in the Gospel of John was at a wedding, turning water to wine to celebrate. But there's a lot more going on in that sign. Obviously, he is the bridegroom, but that's another that's another point. <laughs> Wine and strong drink, this seems to accompany celebration and joy. And now, the first thing we see is that John, he must not have any of it. You think, well, that's strange. Why does this path to fullness of joy begin with this call to asceticism and abstinence? 
Is God just going to leave us empty? And then, and then that, that, that uh, you know, satanic voice comes back. You see, He is a killjoy. I knew it. It's always just one big no from Him. But for all of God's no's, there is always, always an even greater yes. <laughs> you just have to keep reading. Was he left empty? Was he left alone? No. He must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not empty here. Full. Fuller than the world could ever get you. It's John the Baptist. God may call us to separate ourselves from this world like sojourners, right? Like exiles. But He will never leave us empty or alone. It's rather so that we would be filled with Him. Now a contrast emerges at this point. There's a filling with wine and strong drink on the one hand and then a filling with the Holy Spirit on the other. You see this contrast start to emerge and it's interesting because we actually see this um, making appearances elsewhere in Scripture. I mean one is actually Acts 2 when the Spirit falls and what do the people think? They must be drunk! No, they're filled with the Spirit. But probably the more, the more uh, critical one for, um, for our, our case here today is Ephesians 5.18, where Paul writes this, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I have a glass of wine, you guys. So I'm not, please, in all this, I, I might use wine and strong drink as a metaphor for the things of the world and trying to get our fill, trying to satisfy our hearts with that. That's why I'm going to use wine and strong drink. I think that's the point here is let go of that to get even more. <laughs> the no's, they're all leading to an even greater yes. The emptiness of the world, fullness of God. So, this contrast in verse 15 pushes us, or, yeah, pushes us towards a decision. Where do we think we're going to find joy? Where do you think you're going to find joy? Is it in the, the soirees, the celebrations with the, you know, champagne flowing and eat, drink, and be merry and let me get it now? Or is it in Him? Here's the interesting thing, and this is what makes this whole, this whole process of getting into to, to joy in God uh, somewhat counterintuitive. The, there's an immediate sense where the things of this world bring in joy and pleasure, right? I think this is the, the alcohol um, that's in our text here actually serves us well as a good analogy. You're happy. Oh, this is great. Oh, I love it. Look at me. I'm on top of the world. Everyone else thinks you're a little silly, but you're on top of the world in your own mind. And then you wake up the next day. Oh, my head. What is the deal? Oh, so stupid. So the, the, the joy that was promised and even experienced at the beginning leaves you empty, hungover. 
spirit, the other side of things, the joy that comes from God, it can feel like loss, can't it? It can feel like letting go. Take up your cross and follow me. The cross isn't fun. I know I have it around my neck, but it's not a piece of jewelry. It puts you to death. It hurts, but we die with him, live with him. We lose our lives for his sake, find it. We empty and get filled. So what starts off then to seem like pain or sorrow actually ends in joy. Now, there's, uh, it's interesting because the Holy Spirit and joy are often paired together in the Scriptures. I mean, numerous examples and often in contexts where things are going horrible in the world for these guys. I want, you to, I want you to make note of just a couple of these. Acts 13.52, Paul and Barnabas come into a city and they're, they're turning people to Christ and the Jews in that area don't like it and so a persecution arises and they drive Paul and Barnabas out. Then we read, and the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, joy, even when empty, as far as the world is concerned. Or, 1 Thessalonians 1, 6, read this, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the Word in much affliction. You're losing stuff. This is hard. Things aren't going right. God's a killjoy. Nope. Keep reading. You receive the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Empty, full. Okay? That's the point. And we have a decision to make here. Then, are we going to go after the world and fill ourselves empty? Or are we going to go after God and empty ourselves full? Let it all go for you. Do you remember? Do you remember the woman at the well? I just oh, spirit drinking. I, I got to go there just for a moment. You remember the woman at the well? You remember her? I mean, she's there at the well, but this whole thing is a metaphor. She's dipping her water jar in, drinking water, right? It's just a metaphor for her life. She's at every well in the world, right? Trying to drink her fill. Husband after husband after husband. Relationship after relationship. And Jesus shows up. Because He knows she's still empty. She's filling herself empty. He shows up, and this is what He says to her. John 4, verse 13 Everyone who drinks of this water, this world, will be thirsty again. It's going to leave you hungover. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And we know, John 7.39, that, that spring of water, that stuff welling up, Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit that Christ would, would put inside of us. 
The principle of overflowing life and joy. So you might have to leave behind wine and strong drink. Again, maybe literally, I'm I'm speaking figuratively here. Celebrations of this world, all that it values. You might have to leave that behind. You might have to leave your water jar at the well, like this woman does when she meets Jesus. Forget this water. Read read it. It's in the details. Verse 28 of John 4. She leaves her water jar there because I found where real water is found. You might have to leave wine, strong drink, water jar, wells. But it would only be to be filled in Him. Now, we should say a bit more about the presence of the Spirit um, here at the beginning with John the Baptist um, because this is another major theme for Luke and there's something significant going on uh, at a number of levels that I, I, I want to just meditate on for a moment. Um, four implications that I have um, here, I want to bring it to your attention. The Spirit at work in John the Baptist. The Spirit here at God's uh, uh, resuming his, his redemptive activity. First thing is just that. With the presence of the Spirit, we get this sense that God now is, is, is entering back in. He's picking back up his work. He's about to do something again. Again, you had the 400 silent years before this. So that's critical. The Spirit's here. God's here. Something's going to happen. But the Spirit also points us in the direction of new creation, right? Just like the Spirit was hovering over the waters, hovering over the face of the deep on the first day of creation, right? Now you start to see the Spirit doing unprecedented things as God begins to move towards His Messiah. That's first implication of the Spirit. Second, it actually indicates the arrival of the Messianic age, the age of fulfillment, the coming of the Messiah, all that the Old Testament was pointing towards. It indicates its beginning now. Where do I get that? Well, Joel, here, here's some of the things that were told to Israel that they were waiting for. Okay, Joel 2.28 says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And then in Isaiah 44.3, another very clear one, I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. This is what Jesus is saying is going on to the woman at the well, by the way. I will pour my Spirit upon your offspring. So the coming of the Spirit marks the beginning of this, this last day's age, the messianic age, the age of fulfillment. Something significant very significant, even cataclysmic, is going on. God now, at the beginning of Luke, is inaugurating this great work. And we see the Spirit just saturating the opening chapters of the Gospel until it comes to rest on Jesus in chapter 3. So it's so the Holy Spirit's all over chapters 1 and 2. You'll see it if you read, like don't like ask you to. And then chapter 3, it comes to rest on the Messiah. And then there's not all that much until crucifixion, resurrection, Acts 2, or I'm sorry, Acts 1, ascension, Acts 2, pouring it out. Pouring it out. If you're a statistics guy, you might like this. 
<laughs> Let me find it in my notes. I have it here somewhere. Oh, 16 references explicitly to the Holy Spirit in Luke's gospel. 57 in the book of Acts. It just explodes. So it, it kind of begins here, Luke 1 and 2, localizes onto Christ, who's the one who's going to baptize in the Spirit. That's the whole point of John's ministry, as we're going to uh, reconsider again today. And then that baptism happens, and the Spirit just explodes out the pages of the book of Acts. So this is the age of the Spirit. This is the age that all the prophets were, were foretelling, were looking towards. Spirit here with John the Baptist, very significant detail. It also indicates that John, as the prophet of the Most High, um, verse, uh, verse, or I'm sorry, that it indicates John would be the prophet of the Most High, as you see there in verse 76. So it shows us something significant going on with John. And he's going to take part in bringing in this messianic age, in, in bringing in this new creation in some way. Now forth. Forth. This is, this is powerful. Fourth implication I see. It indicates man's utter dependence upon the Holy Spirit of God to do anything great for God. This child's going to be great before me. How's it going to be great? What's it, how's it going to do something great in God's sight? You want to be great? You want to do something great for God? How do you do that? Spirit of God. Man is utterly dependent. You see, it, doing something great doesn't begin with self-will and our ingenuity. It begins rather with God's Spirit. God is not interested in the self-made man. He has no time for that. He is interested in the remade man by the Holy Spirit, the born-again man. That's what he wants. That's what's great in his sight. As John would even say later in his ministry, John 3, 27, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. I have this ministry because it's given to me. That's the only reason I'm doing anything at all worthwhile. But the last part of verse 15, which we haven't really mentioned yet, takes this fourth implication, the utter dependence on God to do anything, and drives it even deeper. Because John the Baptist is is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Is that about that? If you just let that shatter your categories for a moment, John didn't have a say. I mean, where's John's will in all of this? I don't want the Spirit. I don't want this calling. No. He's he, he's a... a, a I don't, know, I don't know my term. Zygote? I don't know. He's in the womb. His consciousness is, is barely developing. His will hardly even there. And God, from that point, even from there, Holy Spirit on him. Now, again, 
This points out in some way the significance of this man and his ministry, right? But in another sense, it highlights for us the absolute freeness of God's grace. Totally free. Not beholden to you or me, our will, anything. He just moves in grace upon sinners and uses them for great things. Your salvation from faith's first bud to the fruit that follows can all be put under the banner of that magnificent statement from the Apostle Paul. Romans 9.16 It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. John's going to be great how God is getting involved. Even from the womb. Is your God that free? Is His grace that big? Are you that in need? Are you just sick? Are you just sick and kind of need a little medicine and then you'll get, you'll get better? Or are you dead and you need resuscitation from God Himself? The great physician, as someone mentioned earlier. You've got to come in and bring me to life. That's why I understand grace. And I think it's there in our text. Now, moving on to verse 16 in a family reunion. We return to following John on the way to fullness of joy. And as we come then to verse 16, we start to see what John is going to do. This is going to be... Obviously, we're, we're going to close this morning. We start to see what John is going to do that will make him so great and will result in the joy for many. And joy for many. We've already seen how he's going to do it by the Holy Spirit. And now we start to see what he will do. Read it there, verse 16. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. His ministry is going to be one of turning. God is joy. He's got to get us back to God. We're turning back. And the language of turning is not good for our egos. Right? What it means is, you and I, we're going the wrong way. (laughs) We're like that... We're like that guy who's so excited to, to have the ball. I don't know which analogy to use. You know, at soccer, perhaps, this happens more. We're like that guy who's, who's so excited to have the ball, you know, and, and the crowd's around, and he's, he's amped, and he's running, and he's going, but he's headed towards the wrong goal. And everyone's yelling, what are you doing? He thinks joy and glory is at the end of this. Go! And it's just shame. Shame. Emptiness. The crowd don't love him. They hate him. You've seen that happen? That happens. I see that on YouTube sometimes. <laughs> That's us, you guys. That's what the language of turning means. We think we're great. We think we're going. We're filling ourselves with wine and strong drink and all that this world has to offer. He says it's going to leave you empty. You better turn now before it's too late. It's a counterintuitive way here again. Just like, just like this empty fullness that we saw in the previous verse, now we see this kind of low highness, if you will. 
We've got to get low before we can get up to God. Where the world would say, okay, you want joy? You want joy? Yeah, you do. I know you do. This is how you're going to get it. Exalt yourself. Stand up for yourself. Protect yourself. Come against those who come against you. Show yourself to be greater. That's what the world says. John comes in on the scene and he said, You want joy? Humble yourself. You are a sinner. You don't deserve joy at all. But oh, he is gracious and so happy to give it. You got to turn. It's counterintuitive. You got to get low if you can get high. Humanity went off in Adam, right? With the rising chorus of it was goods that we looked at. Rising chorus from God of it was goods. Man refused to harmonize. I'm not going to sing with that. I don't think this is all that good. He gave us everything, but the one thing, and that one thing became everything. I got everything, but you said no to one thing, and now that one thing, as far as I'm concerned, is everything to me. You're a killjoy. Satan's right there. Why is he holding that back? He knows it's going to be good for you. He's trying to keep joy from you. So what happens? Okay, all right, all right. God's telling us no. What happens if we tell him no? We've had enough. No back. (laughs) What happens when they try to go out and, 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 and they say no to God? Do they find joy? No. They kill it. They kill it. They leave it. I had all this stuff on Israel. I'll, I'll, I'll skip that. No. Yeah. No, you got to see this. <laughs> In our text, it's not talking about Adam, is it? It's talking about Israel. It says, John in particular is going to be turning many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. The children of Israel, right? He said, I'm not talking about Adam. I'm not talking about all the nations yet. Nick, what are you doing? Well, here's my understanding of Israel. I want you to get this. They're essentially replaying the fall of Adam for all the nations to see. Okay? They are, they are essentially right now, um, or in Israel, the fall of man is, is put on the global stage. And all the nations that, that all proceeded from Adam are called to take their seats and watch. The fall that took place at an individual level in Adam takes place at a national level in Israel. Let me show you uh, the, the parallels very quickly. Israel emerges from the chaotic waters of the Red Sea, right? It's kind of their creation moment, if you will. And they're called his firstborn son, exactly what Adam was called. And then what? They're led into a garden paradise land, Canaan, right? 
A lot of similarities, even in the language. And then what? They're given the law. But what happens? They say, no, we don't like this law. And they rebel. And then they are expelled from that holy land, that garden paradise, into exile. And all the nations are looking in at this stage. And they're seeing. That's us too. And all of this is preparing the world so that John could come in to Israel, but with the nations in audience, and say, joy is going to be found this way. Let's turn back. So, now, how's John going to do this? Turning Israel back and with them the nations. Us. How's he going to do this? This is where we're going to close. What does this ministry of turning look like? Here's my statement for you. He's going to get us back to the Lord by handing us off to the Christ. Right? He's going to get us back to the Lord by handing us off to the Christ, who is the second Adam, the true Son of God, the true Israel. Savior of the world. He's the one. And you see this there in verse 17. We say, what is this turning going to look like? Well, it looks like this. And we're going to go into verse 17 a lot more next week. But for now, just notice this. He's going before the Lord. And he's making ready or preparing people for the Lord. So this, this ministry of John, his journey ends where Christ's begins. Okay? His work is one of preparation. Christ's work is going to be one of inauguration and consummation. Fulfillment. He's pointing us to the only one who could ever actually return us to the Lord. I want you to hear this. This is Isaiah 49, verses 5 and 6. This is the servant, the suffering servant the messianic servant, the one that Israel was hoping in, the one that God promised would come. This is what is said of him. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. There's Jacob and Israel being brought back to God by this servant. And the Lord is saying of me, servant, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. God says, I'm bringing everybody back in to my presence where there is fullness of joy, Psalm 16, bringing everybody back in, and I'm doing it through you, servant, Christ, Jesus. John knows this, his whole ministry, pointing people to this. That's how he's going to turn us back. And so we leave John uh, as we follow him, the joy now, and we start following Jesus. And Jesus doesn't lead us to the throne to a palace leads us to the cross. Leads us to the cross, right? 
the servant in Isaiah 49 would be the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And the joy that rang out at the beginning of Luke's gospel momentarily kind of becomes this despair in the people of God. (laughs) Where's the throne? Where's the palace? Where's the kingdom? Where's the king? I say momentarily because when Jesus raises from the dead three days later, my sins remain in the grave, right? In the depths, the bottom of the sea, that's where He puts my sins. How does He do it? Christ went there! (laughs) And when He rose, they stayed. He opens a way for us back to the presence of God and the fullness of His joy. That's how it's done. His sorrow that was unto death. That is John. I'm sorry, that's Matthew 26, 38. Was so that ours could be a joy unto glory. That's 1 Peter 1, 8. And the joy that sounds out at the end that I talked about in Luke 24 has a different tenor. A little bit different quality to it than the joy that began in chapter 1 of Luke. After the death, after the resurrection, after the ascension, this joy at the end is what Jesus would say in John is a joy that cannot be taken from you anymore. Because I am the object of your joy and I've conquered Satan, sin, and death. It's over. Joy everlasting, you guys. And so here's the call. Here's the call. Sinner, come home. Why are we looking elsewhere? Why are we drinking from this well and that well? This bottle of wine, that handle of whatever, strong drink. Why are we going there feeling ourselves empty? This is saying, sinner, come home. The way to fullness of joy in the presence of God is through the Christ who died for our sins so that Adam, those in Adam, could find new life in the second Adam. Let's go there together, right? Let's pray. Jesus We thank you for John's ministry. That he wanted to decrease so you could increase. He handed us off to you. He prepared the way for you, Lord. Forgive us that we don't follow his direction. Forgive us when we, 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 we step off that path and we start thinking it's somewhere else, Lord. We know it's counterintuitive. We know it's not the way of the world. God, we need you to help us. And more than that, Jesus, I, I pray the people in this church, we would be like John. That as the Spirit fills us, it would fill us to do the very same thing. Not only finding joy in our Bridegroom, Messiah, Christ, Savior, but also bringing other people into that joy. We want to do great things for you, Lord. Would you help us to leave the things of this world? Fill us with your Spirit. 
And let us find our joy and lead others to find their joy in you.